For those of you that are new to Sovereign Grace, we're presently in a series looking at the book of Exodus, the whole premise of what it means to be drawn out, to be drawn in by the Lord. And I'd be grateful if you're turning your Bibles, please, to Exodus chapter 13. If you want a title for this message, if you're making notes, I've called it When God Sees More Than Us. And this really is an incredible piece of scripture that we find ourselves in this morning. To bring us up to speed with where we're at, the people of God are finally free. They have been released from Pharaoh, they've been released from Egypt, they are marching out of Egypt victoriously and wonderfully, they've plundered Egypt, they're now headed towards the promised land and they are no doubt excited about what is taking place. They are anticipative of what is taking place. They are joyful in what is taking place. Imagine the atmosphere as two million of them leave Egypt, exhilarated that they are free for the first times in their life. But then imagine how they feel when their journey very quickly takes an unexpected turn. And that's what happens. Let's read together from... Chapter 13, verse 17, we're going to read to verse 14, and then by the end of the message, we're going to have done all the way to the end of chapter 14, so we're going to do quite a lot of text today. Chapter 13, verse 17, this is the word of the Lord. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up one out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pihaharith, between Migdol and the sea. In front of Baal Zephon, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done, what, that, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them, encamped at the sea by Pahiroth in front of Baal Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. 
And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord which he will work in you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silenced. Let's pray. Lord, you do see more than we see. You care for us and protect us in ways that we didn't even see happening. But Lord, I do pray that today, as we examine your word, that you would open our eyes afresh to who you are and where you are and what you see. Lord, help us to be humbled by this. Help us to be enthused by this. Help us to be comforted by this. You are God, and you are good. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, when it comes to the particular pathways of our lives, I think it would be fair to say that it isn't always easy. Sometimes when we become Christians, we wrongly assume that our life is going to be a bed of roses. But it ain't. Job 5 verse 7 says, As surely as sparks fly upwards, man is born to trouble. And it's true, isn't it? We put our faith in Jesus and sometimes we think it's going to be fine, but as the scripture tells us, as sure as sparks fly upwards, man is born to trouble, both Christian and non-Christian alike. And so you go to hospital. You hadn't been anticipating a trip to hospital, but you've discovered a pain somewhere, and you go to hospital, and you start chatting with the doctor. They do different scans, and he tells you it is bad news because you ain't going to get better. This is going to be with you now for months, if not years. You may even die from this news. And Maybe that news isn't for you. Maybe that's for a family member, and, and you have to walk closely with them as they receive this news that they have been diagnosed with something in their life that they're not going to get better from. And they're tempted in that moment to wonder, Lord, why? Where are you now? Why have you brought me along this pathway in my life? Why have you allowed this to happen to me? I thought you loved me. Or maybe it's a relational challenge. You go through a season of just profound aloneness. And although there are people around you everywhere in Sydney, you nonetheless feel isolated and alone. And you find that hard. And you wonder, Lord, if you really loved me, then why would I feel so alone? If you really cared for me and were blessing my life, why would I be so friendless? Or maybe you're single and you desperately desire to be married. You know that he who finds a wife finds a good thing. So why not just the Lord bless you with this good thing? Is it wrong to want to be married, Lord? And every time you look, all of your friends seem to be getting married, but you are not. And you can be tempted in that moment to wonder, Lord, where have you gone? What are you doing to me? Have you just got distracted or something? Are you indifferent to what's going on in my life? Or maybe actually you're married 
and you envy the singles. Because in your marriage, it is a hardship. You argue all the time. You go through difficulties all the time. And as you lie in your bed at night, weeping once again, your cry of your heart is, Lord, why me? Why didn't you help me see this before I got into this? Lord, I can never get out of this. Why are you not helping me? If you really loved me, surely you'd be involved here, but I don't sense you anywhere in this. Or maybe it's a financial challenge. You've been to uni, you've trained for years, you've got the dream job in mind, but you can never get it. You just can't land the job that you're looking for, the job that you've been trained for. Or maybe you get the job that you've been trained for, it's all going well until the job is made redundant. And you're tempted in that moment to wonder, Lord, what is up with this? I've got a family to feed. There are people relying on me. We're just about to have a baby, and now I've lost my job. Where are you? I thought you loved me. Are you not interested in what I'm going through? Have you abandoned me? Or maybe it's a kid challenge. The more you keep trying to care for them, the more they keep pulling away. And they just seem to go from one trial to the next. And over months and years, all you can see is that they are moving away from the Lord all the time. And it breaks your heart. But it also leaves you in confusion with the Lord. God, where are you in this? I thought you cared about me. I thought you loved me. I thought you were there to help me. See, as sure as sparks fly upwards, man is born to trouble. And it is so easy in our humanity, as we go through trials, to think of God as somehow absent, uninterested, indifferent, maybe something worse, maybe cruel. Maybe life is one like one giant Hunger Games, and he's just the puppet at the top, orchestrating the whole thing. You know, when we walk through trials, I think we can be tempted to think of God as absent, uninterested, or maybe even indifferent. But what this text teaches us in a sentence is simply this. That whatever the pathways of our lives may be, He is always with us, always involved, and always faithful. See, as sure as sparks fly upwards, troubles do fall. But the reality of our lives is that whatever the particular pathways of our lives may be, He is always with us, always involved, always faithful. In fact, He is all these things each and every step of the way. What a comforting and hope-inspiring reality this really is. This would have been comforting and hope-inspiring for the original readers. The original leaders, most likely of Exodus, would have been the people of God waiting by the edge of the Jordan, waiting to go into the promised land, but all they can see in the promised land is very, very big people that want to fight them. God's seeking to remind them, listen, consider your past, consider your history. I've always been with you, I've always been involved, I've always been faithful, I will be again. And seen correctly, it should be comforting and hope-inspiring to us as well because this truth isn't just for them, it is true for you. Which is why God breathed it into His Scripture. So I have three points this morning. Three points that I learned from Kevin DeYoung. He splits the text up this way. I could, could not improve on it. So number one, what the Israelites could see. 
Number two, what the Israelites couldn't see. And then number three, God's wonderful response. Number one, what the Israelites could see. It would be fair to say that when you consider what the Israelites could see, they could see quite a lot. As you consider their lives, you consider where they stand at the start of this journey, in honest truth, they can see a lot of things. They can see enough without any doubt to be able to stand firm and fear not, trusting in the Lord, without any doubt. Because when you consider what they can see, they can see some incredible things. I mean, first and foremost, in their lives, they can see their great salvation, because it's only just happened to them, all right? This is fresh in their minds. It is days earlier that they have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in the blood of the Lamb alone. They are still holding their firstborns in their arms, aware, I cannot believe we still have you. We were there that night, and as the angel of death came through, he killed all the firstborns, but not you, my love. It is very fresh in their minds that God has just saved them as a people. They are walking out of Egypt, shaking their heads, aware this is scandalous. And they're not just walking out with nothing. They're walking out with earrings and clothing. They've plundered the Egyptians. Fresh in their minds is their great salvation. And fresh in their minds is the reality that this was all through the mighty hand of God. Did you see that a couple of weeks ago in chapter 13? It's there. In the Passover, we're to be reminded that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in the blood of the Lamb alone, but then there's something else. Four times God repeats that he's done this by his mighty hand. Pay attention, chapter 13, verse 3. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. Verse 9, for with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out from Egypt. Verse 14, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. Verse 16, for by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. You get it? The Lord is helping him see, I saved you by grace alone, through faith alone, in the blood of the Lamb alone. And it was all me, by my strong hand, my power and my might. I've got you, Israel. This is freshly ringing in their ears. He's only just told them these things. And so as they set off on this journey, what is freshly in their minds, what they can see freshly is their great salvation. That's not all. What they can also see is God's faithfulness to them. Pay attention, verse 19. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. The bones of Joseph are hugely significant because they are a living, well, albeit dead because they're bones, but a living reminder of God's faithfulness and his covenant to these people that I've got you, and I always said I would. See, in Genesis chapter 12, God makes his covenant with Abraham. God pulls Abraham to one side and he says, Abraham, this is the way it's going to be. I'm going to make through you a great nation. Through you, I'm going to bring about a great multitude. And I'm going to give you a land that you can dwell in. 
and you are going to become a great nation and I will be your God and you will be my people. And Abraham, you know what? They are going to know more than the stars of heaven and you're going to bless the nations through them. God promised that to Abraham. It was a covenant with Abraham. And you know what? Joseph, in years to come, having heard about his covenant with Abraham and Jacob and Isaac, he believed it. And so in Genesis chapter 50, Joseph has spent the vast majority of his life in Egypt. As you know, he becomes the prime minister of Egypt. God uses him to save the people of Israel, to care for them, to bring food to them so that they actually survive. That's how they end up in Egypt in the first place. But as Joseph's life's come to an end, this is Joseph's dying wish. Genesis chapter 50, verse 24 and 25. It said, And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear to him, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. Joseph knew the promises of God. He knew Egypt wasn't going to be your long-term home, Israel. Because God's made a promise to you that He will give you your own land. He will make for you a great nation. He will make for you a great multitude and it ain't going to happen here. He's going to lead you out. And Israel, I'm not going to see this day. I'm about to give my dying breath away. But you will. And when that happens, here's what I want you to promise me. Take my bones, right? Because I don't belong here. I belong with you. And I belong with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And as the people of God leave Egypt, there are his bones in a casket. A reminder of the promise of God, the covenant of God. They are walking out with a living illustration of the promise and covenant of God. That this is what's happening. He's made them into a great number. He's made them into a great multitude. They go into the promised land. So they can see their great salvation. They can see God's faithfulness to them. And you know what else they can see? God himself, God himself is present with these people. Pay attention, verse 21 and 22. And the Lord, Yahweh, went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. What a sight this must have been. What a sight. A great cloud before them that would guide them by day and that would guide them by night as flames began to fill it from within. The reason why this would be such a great sight is because what this is here is what is called a theophany. And what a theophany is, is a visible manifestation of God himself. God himself is with the people of God. He is right there in the cloud. It is a visible manifestation of God's presence himself. And he comes in the form of a cloud. We've already had hints of this right earlier. We've seen God in the burning bush. The flames come from the bush. A voice comes from within. All this will culminate in in Exodus chapter 20 later on when God descends onto Mount Sinai and the whole The whole mountain is filled with cloud and lightning and flames at that point. But even here, as the people of God leave Egypt, there is God right there. He's manifesting himself as a cloud. And he's guiding them. 
And we read there, verse 22, and that this cloud did not depart from before the people. He's with them. He's right there with Israel by day and by night, protecting them, loving for them, guiding them. So make no mistake then, when it comes to the Israelites, they can see quite a bit. They can see their great salvation, and they can see that it's all through the mighty hand of the Lord. They can see God's promises to them in the bones of Joseph, and they can see God himself. They have more than enough to be able to stand firm and not fear. But there's something that the Israelites couldn't see, and that caused them some problems. That's point two, what the Israelites couldn't see. See, in all reality, my friends, God can see so much more than we can see, can't he? He has a different perspective, a different view of the world, a different view on everything that is going on in the world that you simply do not have. God can see so much more than we can see. And this, then, is exactly what is demonstrated for us here with the Israelites. Look again at verses 13, verses 17 to 18. It says, When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, Lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. That was chapter 13, verses 17 and 18. You know, this pathway would have, without doubt, been really confusing for the Israelites. So if you ever look at a map, if you've got a map in your, in your, li- in your Bible, it's your lucky day. You'll see Egypt is, is by the sea, and then there's Canaan by the sea. And so if you want to pass between them, you go along the sea. It's not complicated. It's the Mediterranean Sea, off you would go. It's actually called the Via Maris, which is the way of the sea. And so all Israelites would have known, listen, if we're going to go from like Egypt to Canaan, we just go along the sea. But God takes them down here. He takes them south and a long way south. And they were perplexed. What's he doing? Why is he doing this? What is the pathway that he is taking us on? This is not the most direct route. This is not the easiest route. This is a difficult route. Lord, what are you doing? But in actual fact, this was God's mercy to them, wasn't it? Because God can see things that we can't. And God saw the Philistines are between Egypt and Canaan. And if I take them through there, they are going to wet their pants. And they're going to go back to Egypt. They ain't going to play. They are going to be done. He knows their weaknesses. He knows you're going to be fearful, so fearful, you're just going to run back to Pharaoh. Because this is already too hard. And so I'm just going to run back to what I've known before. And I don't want that for you, Israel. So I'm going to take you south. And if we pay attention to this text, what a wonderful opportunity I think this text affords us to thank God for all the divine nevers that we are no doubt completely unaware of in our lives day after day after day after day. See, for many of us, we will have times in our life where you look back and you think, man, if if God had never taken me from Spalding to get a university in Cardiff, where I then left after a year anyway because I wanted to get married to somebody else and it all got very confusing. But if I'd never done that, never would have met my wife, 
Never would have had the kids I've got. Never would have been in the Sovereign Grace Church because there was only actually one Sovereign Grace Church in the UK. We can all look back in our lives and say things like that, right? But what I think we fail to do sometimes is recognize, but what about all the divine nevers? What about all the things that you don't know about? How many things is God protecting you from every day of your life that you simply have no clue? Our lives are probably no doubt filled with divine nevers, just like it is here for Israel. God is protecting them. They are perplexed, but God is protecting them. It's a divine never. The Israelites in this moment just could not see what God was doing. It did not make any sense to them at all. And so the last straw comes to them in chapter 14, verses 1 and 2, when an unexpected reversal in direction takes place. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Piharith between Migdol and the sea. In front of Baal Zephon, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. This is a most unexpected reversal in direction. Egypt, Canaan, that's the way we go, but God brings us all the way down here, and then he brings us up, we're getting towards Canaan, and then he turns us around again. What's up with that? What is he doing? What on earth is his pathway going on here for us? This, to the Israelites, was the last straw. This whole thing made no sense to them at all. They are well aware that this pathway now, that this cloud, which is God himself, is leading them on, has put them now in a great deal of danger. They've just walked past, because of the route they had taken, various different strongholds and spy sites of Egypt. They're well aware we are sitting ducks in the wilderness. And now God has just backed us up against the Red Sea. He's parked himself in front of us. And guess what? That cloud ain't moving. And they know exactly what's going to happen. And then it does. The Egyptian armies start appearing and they're like, oh my goodness. They have their backs against the sea. The cloud is right in front of them. It is not moving. And so the Israelites in that moment do what they do best in stressful and scary situations. They complain. They are totally ticked off. And they begin complaining. Verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes. And behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. You see, in that moment, the Israelites are fearful. They are stressed. And so they do what they do best. They complain. And as they complain, they reinterpret two things. First and foremost, they reinterpret the past. And so they look back at their past and straight away they're like, well, it clearly wasn't that bad after all. Even though they've been crying out to God for years, for years, help us, help us, help us. He begins to help them. Or what do they say? We were better off there. They start reinterpreting their past. Oh, how quickly sometimes we forget our past, do we not? 
But more seriously, they start reinterpreting God. They start to believe a lie. Well, God, clearly you've brought us out here to die. You're clearly uninterested in us. You don't care about us. This must just be a game to you. How dare you do this to us? Lord, we thought we knew you better, but look at us now. You have failed us. And when you start to understand what they are doing in this stressful and scary situation, in all reality, if we're honest with ourselves, this pattern of complaint can sound all too familiar, can it not? See, for us, I think it is so easy to not theologically believe in a health and wealth gospel, but to functionally live as if that's the way it should be. That if God really loves me as a father, what that means is I might have occasional blips in my life, but on the whole, my life should be really good. I shouldn't really get that sick, because if God loved me, he wouldn't allow that to happen in my life. And I should be comfortable in my life, right? I mean, all I want is to like, get a house so I can settle down and do normal things. That's not a bad thing, right? And if God really loved me, that's what he'd bless me with. And so we say we don't believe in a health and wealth wealth gospel theologically, but we do start to practice as if that's the way it should be. If God really loves me, if God's really interested in me, then my life should be pretty sweet. But it's not. And so when we are backed into a corner under stress and fear, we start complaining. We start reinterpreting the past. We start reinterpreting God. We even get angry with God. As if, how dare you do this to me? Completely unaware that he sees more than you see. And yet we have the audacity as an ant before the maker of heaven and earth to wag our finger at him. Kevin DeYoung says it this way. He says, surely one of our besetting sins as a relatively prosperous people living in an amazingly prosperous country is that we are complainers. Prone to reinterpreting the past, restating our unbelief, rebelling against the one who really means to help us, thinking that we know best and forgetting what God has done. He talks about that, obviously meaning the United States, but I submit to you Australia is no different. We are an incredibly prosperous people living in an amazingly prosperous country and we do have a tendency, I think, to be complainers. My life should be pretty sweet. But then I discover, as sure as Sparks Fly Upwards troubles fall, God even tells us, he tells us how to cope with those things, where to look in those things. But we don't do that. No, instead we wag our finger at him. How dare you let this happen to me? If you really care about me, you wouldn't let this happen. We sulk like a toddler. We are complainers. And Israel can relate. Just a few days earlier, they have been saved by the mighty hand of God, saved by grace through faith alone in the blood of the Lamb alone. They are carrying the bones of Joseph, a constant reminder of God's faithfulness to them again and again. And God is even there. He's right there in front of them. And yet still, they use this as an opportunity not to thank him, but to complain. I can't believe you've done this. 
Well, look then at God's wonderful and gracious response to them. You know, as I studied for this this week, it was just another reminder of how different God is from me. I think I would have been tempted in that moment to be like, you know what? Yeah, I'm done. Cloud, up. Finish them off. They're doing my boxing. (laughs) But not the Lord. Even though they are once again complaining at him, casting aspersions on him, on his character, he stands by them. And we see then in chapter 14 onwards from verse 13, his wonderful response. Look at then at what he says to them. Chapter 14, verses 13 and 14. It says, And Moses, obviously speaking on behalf of the Lord, and Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. He tells them, listen, guys, I get it. But fear not. Stand firm. See the salvation of the Lord, and be silent. You know, just to be clear, when God tells us to be silent, he's not saying, hey, listen, people, never ask a question. You get sick, never go to a doctor, never do anything. Just stand and be quiet. He's not saying that. But what he is saying is when you are in fear and you are under stress, stand still, be still and know that I am God. Trust me. Israel, fear not. See what I will do. Be silent and stand firm. You know that phrase, stand firm? It's actually a military term of what the army needs to do at different points, to stand firm, to take your ground. Do not move. And yet that can actually be really hard in the midst of trials sometimes, can't it? We can want to do everything but stand still. C.H. Spurgeon says it this way. He says, I dare say you will think it is a very easy thing to stand still. But it is one of the postures which the Christian soldier learns not without years of teaching. I find that marching and quick marching are much easier to God's warriors than standing still. It is perhaps the first thing we learn in the drill of human armies. But it is one of the most difficult to learn under the captain of our salvation. The apostle seems to hint at this difficulty when he says, Stand fast, and having done all, still stand. To stand at ease, listen, to stand at ease in the midst of tribulation shows a veteran spirit, long experience, and much divine grace. And so it does. The pathway of your life takes an unexpected turn. You are tempted to be fearful of what is taking place. You are tempted to be stressed and confused. And God looks you in the eye and says, trust me. Fear not, and stand firm. Just stand. Be still and know that I'm God. Don't flap around everywhere. Israel, stand. For that does indeed, as Mr. Spurgeon tells us, I think, take a veteran spirit, long experience, and divine grace. 
But it is what Christian maturity looks like for the glory of God. In the midst of trial, in the midst of stressful and difficult pathways, they just stand. I trust you. And look then at what God does. Chapter 14, verses 15 to the end. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry out to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen, then the angel of God who is going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went in the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall on the, uh, to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watched the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. By a mighty hand, the Lord had saved them once again. They had their backs against the sea, an unexpected pathway. They were in fear. They were stressed. They were complaining. They are fearful of the Egyptians. And yet they finish this story fearful of the Lord. Standing ever increasingly in reverence and awe before him as they realized he's got this. And they had learned the lesson. That whatever the particular pathways of our lives may be, He is always with us, always involved, and always faithful in each and every step of the way. It's a lesson, in effect, they failed. 
But it is a lesson that God has put here for us because he wants you and I to pass. He wants us to understand. I see what you do not see. And yet in the pathways of your lives, I am always with you, always involved, and always faithful each and every step of the way. As surely as sparks fly upwards, man is born to trouble. Things will happen in our lives, guarantee it. For many of you, you may be on this pathway right now. And you are wondering, Lord, why? What are you up to? Well, my friends, I want to encourage you. He's the one who by grace saved you. He was the one who saved you by grace alone, through faith alone, in the blood of his son alone. He died in your place to draw you near. If that doesn't scream of his personal, particular passion for you, then nothing ever will for you. And he's reminding us all the time of his promises to you. We don't have the bones of Joseph. We have something better. We have this. God's words written to us all the time, which is filled with promises that we can stake and step as we take on this pathway, a reminder that the Lord will never leave me or forsake me. He hems me in both behind and before. I lift my eyes to the hills from where does my help come from? My help comes from the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let my foot slip. He watches me. He doesn't slumber or sleep. It doesn't mean there won't be times when I'm on pathways where I'm confused, but I can always know who. Who it is that leads me. And I know his character because I see it at the cross. It is one of love and grace and mercy. And I know throughout all of Scripture his ongoing promise that I will never leave you or forsake you. I will be with you to the end of the age. My friends, in all honesty, it is rare that God will take us on a pathway that we would have chosen as best for ourselves. Honestly, nearly every time I pick an ideal pathway for myself, I'm going from here to here, boop, 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 boop. I seem to go around here. And you're like, what are you doing? Well, I'll tell you what he's doing. He's working for your good and his glory, even when you can't see it. It is rare that we will go on a pathway of our lives that will be the shortest, most obvious, most direct. But what I can guarantee to you is that whatever the particular pathway of your life may be, he's always with you, always involved, and always faithful. As a sovereign grace church, I want to exhort you then, fear not and stand firm. Don't fear he has you. And stand firm. You could trust him. And would you then be a living testimony of grace who trusts in the King of kings and Lord of lords and would all glory then go to him. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, how kind you are to address us so largely, so vastly, 
and yet so personally. Lord, you are deeply involved in each and every pathway of our lives. Nothing is a shock to you. You see our hearts, you know our frames, you know our ways, you know what you are trying to do in our lives. Lord, did you help us then when we are finding our pathway confusing and perplexing? Would you help us not to complain? Would you help us to trust you? Would you help us not to cast aspersions on you and reinterpret the past or who you are? Would you help us to stand firm and fear not? And would it all be for your glory, Lord? For you are good. And you've got this. So would we trust in your precious name. For your glory. Amen.